The Lord be with you. Just a couple of reminder announcements that um, beginning on March 6th, which is this week, very soon, uh, we're hosting Financial, Financial Peace University here with the, the Teskies. He asked me to, do, did you want to say something or do you want me to say, just keep talking? That's this, starts on Monday at 7 p.m. Go ahead. Thank you, Teskies. Lent soup supper this Wednesday. Uh, again, uh, there's a group, is it Women's Lifelight, I think, is doing this Wednesday. Uh, but anybody can bring dessert and help. You guys are doing so great helping set up for all that. Uh, during Holy Week, we are going to have an Easter, you, you, the youth are going to do Easter breakfast in here and an Easter egg hunt for the little kids, like the Sunday school kids down in the, well, we try to do it outside if the weather holds up. So uh, just to keep in the loop, bring your Easter baskets to church on Easter Sunday. Laudamus, Laudamus, I don't know how to say that. Uh, that's the choir for Concordia Seminary St. Louis. They'll be here on Monday, March 20th at 6.30. So we'll remind you the, the week before for a, for a concert. And also for like anybody interested in the, at the seminary, learning, learning more about going to seminary, being a pastor, uh, they told us to encourage young guys to come and eat dinner with them and they can chat more about that. So we'll, we'll keep you in the loop on that as we get closer. Let's get into Luke 17. Last week, we started with, uh, with 17, verse 1, the temptations to sin, the, the millstone around your neck, the disciples praying for faith, Lord, increase our faith. And if you, if you had faith in the right thing, then, then you'd be set, says Jesus. And then he says, you're unworthy servants. So the, basically, the life of the, the, the duty of the Christian, the, the duty of the Christian life, the expectation for us is to forgive in the way that we've been forgiven. And that's the life of faith. Now in the context of this life of faith that Jesus has already alluded to already, we get to these lepers, the 10 lepers. So verse 11 and following, and this text comes up in the lectionary on Thanksgiving Eve, the Thanksgiving day. I'm actually not sure if it comes up in the lectionary during the year when it's not on Thanksgiving because it's like the given Thanksgiving text, so, um, but it's, it's familiar nonetheless. So verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, pause, what's that, what's that saying? On the way to Jerusalem, <laughs> that's certainly true. <laughs> what, what's, what happens in Jerusalem? Crucifixion. Crucifixion. So we know where he's headed and he's been headed I mean, Luke, the timeline, obviously our timeline in our Bible study, it's, it's, it's quite long, but uh, starting at Luke 9, 51, I think, is where he comes off the Mount of Transfiguration. He starts heading, he sets his face on Jerusalem and he's headed to the cross. And now everything starts to speed up and kind of refocus in on, on where he's headed. And where he's headed is all, all, always very helpful in 
unpacking the things that he says. Like a couple weeks back, we talked about his, like he's kind of oddly talking about like marriage in one case, um, like being good stewards in another. Like we have to remember all these things in the context of him going to the cross. Otherwise, he's just a guy giving us advice. And that's not why he became flesh. So he's on the way to the cross. He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So Samaria on the north side, as is Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. So you think about your, your picture. You're, uh, I haven't used this in a long time. This is the first time you used a board in 2023. It's a big moment you're about to see. So and my, I'm, 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 my maps are really good. So James, will pre- I'll make sure you can see this. This is like the, the Red Sea, right? So Egypt is... Oh, Mediterranean Sea? <laughs> Stay out of this, Keith. Uh, Jerusalem's here. You get the, the Jordan River where Jesus is baptized. The Dead Sea here, the Sea of Galilee. Up here, Jesus is the wedding at Cana. Jesus is from like up here in this area. Bethlehem is where he was born down here. But if you remember back, we have to kind of draw this imaginary line here. Back when the, the kingdoms divided at Jerusalem in the Old Testament, after, you know, you have David, the great king, and then his son Solomon, he has the temple and everything's going great. And then as soon as Solomon dies, his son, uh, so he has, so Jeroboam and Rehoboam, Rehoboam was the rightful heir to the throne. And Jeroboam had, was like the guy that everybody liked. Oh, sorry, I did a disservice. You're not seeing the map over here. It's very helpful. Um, <laughs> move it. <laughs> um, so Jeroboam has like the respect and the control of all the power of the people love Jeroboam and so there was a fight like a, a, Jeroboam wanted the power wanted the kingdom but Rehoboam was the rightful heir and you had this fight that they're duking it out and ultimately Jeroboam so like, I'm gonna take my ball and go home and Jeroboam goes to the north up in Samaria and these northern kingdoms up here and then the southern kingdoms down here, as you, as, as you go through like 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, all that history of the northern and southern kingdoms, it all comes back to that epic split between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And the bad stuff that started to happen, though, is when Jeroboam took his, his gang of, of thugs and went north, they were like, they were still Jewish. They were still Israelites. I mean, when they cut themselves off from the temple, which is down here in Jerusalem, and they went north, they were no longer Israel, Israelites in the Lord's sense, but they, they still had all these like life, their way of living, um, the, temp, the idea of a temple. And so they, they built a temple, but God didn't say to build a temple up here. He said to build a temple down here. So they, they basically fabricated the entire Israelite faith up here and they just created all these problems. And they're also like worshiping Baal gods and all the false gods of these Northern kingdoms. So there was this ongoing animosity between the Northern tribes and the Southern tribes. But this line up here on the North side, whenever Jesus is kind of skirting around up here, he's always running into uh, Samaritans. And they're always spoken highly of by Jesus because when you know the context and how the Jewish ear is always like Samaritan, it's like Jerry Seinfeld reading about Newman, right? Yeah, Samaritans, Newman. They just can't, they, just, they hate them and, they, and many of them don't even know why. So they just, they just knew whenever Samaritans got brought up at the dinner table, dad would like make a scoff sound. So I'm gonna do the same thing. So that's kind of the, that's the context. 
So he's between Samaria and Galilee and they're on the north side. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices. So pause there, Leviticus 13, if you wanna, if you wanna see why they're standing at a distance, Leviticus and tells us why. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 13, 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So when you think about this, I, I think, I mean, growing up with like Lutheran with your CPH um, Sunday school stuff, I mean, you, you always get the sense of these lepers, they're, they're dressed like mummies, they got like the, the clothes kind of on their faces and they look sick and they're coming to Jesus. But it's, I think it's helpful, especially here, to, to, put some more, to put some more narrative on the lepers. They would have had families, children. So like, so here's dad with his wife and he's got his three little kids and he's got this, oh no, I got this skin disease a rash, maybe, maybe it'll go away, if it doesn't. And you go to the priest, which is like, uh, seems to be like a hybrid medical professional as well as, so you have the religious side and the, and the medical side. And they would declare whatever it was, whatever the skin disease was. And then, so you're cut, at that point, cut off from the community. But it wasn't like there was, there was like uh, Neosporin or all these like wonderful medical advances that we have. When you get leprosy, it's kind of the end, you're done. So you're, and it's not like, take a moment and say goodbye to everybody. It's like immediate rejection of the whole community. By kids, by wife, out by myself, outside the camp. Very sad and despairing. And um, so you see this, this pain and angst. So not only cut off from family, but maybe most importantly, cut off from the temple. As those who are unclean, they couldn't even go to where God is delivering salvation to them. So it's sad and despairing in so many levels. And they were kind of, they were joining together in these leper colonies because they get together with other people with the same problem because no one else will hang out with them. But you're not gonna get, you're not gonna worry about like getting leprosy if you already have it. So you, you can be friends with other lepers. They stood at a distance and they lifted up their voices and were supposed to say what? Unclean, unclean, which they might've done. But and maybe if Jesus had approached them, but instead they say, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. So already we have to draw some conclusions about these lepers because they don't say, you there, sir, come hither. <laughs> they say what? Jesus and have mercy, which assumes what kind of knowledge do those lepers have? That he's Jesus, and that he's able to do what? Heal. Heal. So they've, in other words, they've heard the gospel. They've heard the word. Uh, and so we think of obviously the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, the whole, the book, the Bible, the book, but like, this is like the way the word is spreading in their context. It's like people who happen to be walking by the leper colony throwing bread at them like seagulls. Here's some food. Uh, by the way, there's this Jesus guy, like you're talking, you can imagine like talking to grandpa from the leper colony's safe social distance. 
And hey, how are things back? How are things back in Galilee? Oh yeah, you know, some stuff's, crazy stuff's happening. Um, built a new well. We got the crops out this year. Also, remember how Aunt Sue had that like continuous flow of blood for 20 years? Well, turns out she touched Jesus and he's better now. She's better now. Like what? what? How did that happen? So we're talking about Jesus. And that, of course, that message is going to spread around the leper colony. So now they're just waiting for this Jesus guy to, to stumble upon their colony. So they cry out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest, which I think would have been a hard thing for them to say, because you only go to the priest if, you're, if you already are healed. Like you go to the priest for them to like verify that it's legit, like the, 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 that the leprosy actually went away. And um, so for, for them, they, they already have leprosy and Jesus doesn't say to them, you're healed and then go to the priest, but they actually have the leprosy and he's telling them to go to the priest who's going to call them unclean. And they're like, why would I do that? And yet it shows, some, it shows some good faith in Jesus that they would even do it. They do it. They get up to go. Unlike Benny Hinn, by the way. So like, you know who Benny Hinn is? Is, is it still popular? I mean, now with, with streaming services, no one's streaming faith healers on TV anymore. But back in the day when you used to have to like scroll through cable to find something to watch, you had the, the faith healers. And Benny Hinn is maybe the one of the most famous. The famous like, be healed. And then somebody who had crutches fell down, they jumped back up and they're running around. Um, but there wasn't like, no one, no one actually showed up with an x-ray of like a broken leg before. And then they walk up to her and they like do the x-ray live and they poke her in the leg and make her scream just to make sure. <laughs> and then after, Jesus, after Benny Hinn says healed, they do the x-ray again, right? They're all on live TV. That doesn't happen. Why would that not happen? Hmm, we don't have to think that very far. And yet Jesus is here saying, go to the x-ray. Because that's who he's sending them to. The people who are going to verify the legitimacy. They're the ones who declared him unclean to begin with. He sends them to the x-ray. He sends them to the, to the skin doctors. Um, let's see. And as they went, in their going, is the Greek, as they, as they were walking, they were cleansed. So interesting that the, the word here, cleansed, isn't healed. Now, they were healed, and that's going to be the next verse. But they, so were they healed, but the big thing is this cleansing. So that they were, in the, in the being healed, they're brought back into fellowship with the temple and in, with their society. Like everything, everything fell upon them at once. When that skin disease went away, they're back in. They're back into the community, back into the temple, back into their families. Everything's good. Uh, the one of them, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, when life had broken into death, because that's what happens when God comes into this world, death flees and life breaks in. He turns back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was Newman, the Samaritans. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you, is the Greek, sozo. It could be translated, made you well, made you whole. 
but it's the same word for save in our, think of, in, our, in our way of thinking, Jesus saves us from our sins. Your faith has saved you. And I think that would be a, a more accurate translation there. So he, he turns back. So what was, what's the significant thing in the temple that makes the temple worth, worth anybody going to down here in Jerusalem? Why is the temple so significant? What is there? What's that? God. So is God everywhere? But he specifically locates himself in places for our comfort. So for the Israelite who lives up on the north side, knows that I can go down to Jerusalem and see the temple and take part in the sacrifices and, and experience the mercy of God. Yes, God is everywhere, but he's not there. He's not everywhere giving me, delivering his mercy to me. By the way, it's the same in the New Testament, right? Or New Testament church, us. God is everywhere, but he specifically locates himself for our comfort in his, we call them gifts, his word and sacraments. So we flee to his word. We, we flee to the supper. We, we baptize. So all these ways is, is God making himself present and known in the gospel for us while he is everywhere, yes. So it's the, it's the presence of God that makes the temple worth going to. And so here in, in the Samaritan, he's like, well, wait a second, why am I, because he, he's not a Jew, he's not an Israelite. He's not, he's not thinking about the temple in the same way. So right, these nine other guys are thinking about following the rules and getting declared clean so they can go back to their families and all this. And what they should have been thinking is the temple is where God is and now when God tells me I'm healed, why am I going to the temple to find God when he is the guy who just healed me? So the Samaritan stops in his tracks, turns around and goes right up to Jesus, falls on his face, this posture of worship, at Jesus' feet, recognizing that he's, that he's God, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not 10, uh, we're not 10 cleansed, where are the nine? Jesus, it's not that he's, he's like teaching. I mean, I guess you could ask it as a question. What is Jesus trying to teach us here? Like, what are we supposed to walk away from with this? Is it that we should be, we should be thankful? Is that what he's teaching us? You're thinking he's baiting me, of course. <laughs> It does seem that way. The problem is that what, I guess let me look at my handout here. What is the difference between the nine and the Samaritan? What's the, what's the difference that Jesus talks about? How is the Samaritan commended? What does he have that the other nine did not? See it? Faith. Well, so faith, in, faith is in what is heard and not seen. So when the lepers are all cleansed, they all have faith in what they see. But that kind of, that kind of thing isn't faith, right? So to have faith in what is heard, and that's why it's significant that they had Jesus, master, have mercy on us. They recognize Jesus for who he is. They heard the gospel, and for whatever reason, this was the only one who had faith and recognized God in in Jesus, and now what we see in Jesus is a, a love and concern 
for the nine. Where are they? They need to have faith too. So it's, it's not just that, it's not about thanksgiving, I would argue. I mean, yes, that's, you, you can make a case that it's, it's helpful that it's there, that it's good to give thanks. But that's a natural consequence, that, that's a natural outgrowth of being saved. So notice Jesus didn't have to tell the Samaritan to, to give thanks, right? It's, it's like, an, it, it's, it's not even, yeah, you could say he was expecting it because he was expecting it from the nine, but mostly he was expecting a recognition that he's the living and true God. And that, that was seen in the, in the thanksgiving. If we're after thanksgiving, we're not gonna get thanksgiving from, God's not gonna get thanksgiving from us by telling us to be thankful, right? So sincere thanksgiving comes from the heart and in response to being given tremendous gifts, right? Like when, if you, when you receive tremendous gift, you don't have to like, they don't have to tell you, well, I'll give this to you if you say thank you. That becomes like contingent, that's not a gift. But being saved, having this re remarkable burden removed, return to the community, what else is there to say but thanks? Thanks and praise. Which is, which is well, my number two question, faith's response to God's mercy. This is, this is the life of worship, the life of the Christian, to receive his mercy, to respond in praise and thanksgiving. That's the rhythm of our divine service. We come, receive mercy, give thanks and praise, receive mercy, give thanks and praise. He sends us out into our lives where we pick up leprosy again. He calls us back, cleans us up, gives us mercy. We respond in thanks and praise. And we live a life outside of this place. Our daily life is one of thanksgiving. Um, maybe just a quick note on, on thanksgiving. The, um, the ninth and 10th commandments are the, con about coveting. What that's after is a contentment in us, to be content with the life that we've been given and the stuff that we have, acknowledging that it's all come from God's hand. So to be, that's what it means to be content, to be happy with what you have. And in our sin, we never are. In our sin, we're never, we're never quite content enough, we're never thankful enough, but that just shows our sin. So that's why the, the ninth and 10th commandment are helpful in at least describing for us what contentment with, what looks like is acknowledging everything that I have and everything that I don't have has, give, has been given to me by God. And so I give thanks for it, including the lack. So that's the, that's the hard part, right? It's easy to give thanks for when we get what we, what we really, really want and we get that and we give thanks. But also we need to be able to give thanks when we don't get what we really, really want recognizing that that too came from his hand, even if it's his, by his omission of giving something that we thought we wanted, but he knows better. Or maybe he's allowing some, some suffering or allowing some evil for our good. Luther said that the, the devil is God's devil. That is, the devil thinks he's doing what he wants to do on his own, and he is. But ultimately, God's standing there walking up behind him, taking everything the devil does toward evil and actually turning it for the, for the Christian, turning it toward good. So what the devil meant for bad, God's working toward good. Joseph obviously recognized that, the perfect example in the Old, in the Old Testament, when Joseph's brothers, I mean, the devil is just working like crazy amongst the brother, Joseph's brothers, throw him in the pit, sell him off to slavery. He gets like, 
abused. He's forgotten in prison. I mean, Joseph had a rough, rough go. And at the end of it, he's able to say, well, you guys had a bad intent. The devil was, had a bad idea maybe, but God knew what he was doing. God worked it out for good. God, God had this whole thing setting up for this moment when I could provide for my family. And so we're able to give thanks, even if we don't have a Joseph experience and actually see the final, the, the great benefit at the end, we're given, to say, we're, we're given to say thanks and give praise in the midst of suffering, recognizing God's hand. Even if it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say, especially in our sinful flesh, but according to our life of faith, that's the only thing we can say. Because remember, faith is based on not what we see, but what we hear. So I'm looking at my life and the terrible situation that, that might be experiencing, or the great experience, whatever it is, good or bad, whatever the challenge or experience is, I'm not given to look there, but I'm listening to what Jesus' promises are for me, what he said about me, his promise to be with me, work things out for good. And I'm looking at this mess saying, I don't know how this can possibly go good. But the Christian is given to say, thank you for this. Some of the hymns capture this, if you ever catch it, especially written in like the 1600s. They'll be like, giving thanks for suffering, these weird phrases. You're like, wait a second, rejoice? Rejoice in suffering? How can I rejoice in my suffering? Well, because I know it's from God's hand and God only has good in mind. So if he's brought this suffering, he's gonna use it toward good in some way. Now that's faith. And that's the kind of faith we pray for. So the, a life of thanksgiving, a life living in thanksgiving is, is one that recognizing all that I have and all that I don't have is coming from our Lord's hand, always, always giving thanks to him. That's what separates us from the dogs, by the way, at meals. Like we sit down, I know I've made this joke many times before, but it's not like if you, if you don't bless your food before you eat it, it's not like it's gonna melt your face off like Indiana Jones style. It's like all your, what we're acknowledging when we sit down and say a blessing, a prayer, is that we're saying we're not dogs who just, as soon as the food is down, they're on it. We're actually saying we give thanks at this with, even though I work for this, toward this job to get this money and all these things that I do, ultimately God's hand was behind all of what I'm enjoying right now. Um, that's why we give thanks before we eat. And that, just to recognize God's providing for us, reminding ourselves that God's providing, God's working through my employer, God's working through my family, all the, all the rest. Teaching our children that God's working through parents' hands to provide this food and to make the food and put it before us. Don, question in the back. It's hard to watch other people suffer. Is that what you're saying? Like we want... We'd like for other people, I mean, sometimes in our sinful flesh, we, if the right people are suffering, we're, we're okay with it. Um, but yeah, it's especially for our loved ones, to watch our loved ones suffer is a hard thing to do. It's like, how can, I, how can I give thanks for this terrible disease befalling my loved one? And that's the, cha that's the, that's the challenge of the Christian life is I'm like, I'm sitting here, that is the ongoing, I think, the biggest problem that we have is we have an all-powerful, all-loving God 
is with us and loves us and wants what's best for us, and then we get cancer or whatever the problem is. We're like, just to be clear, you've got all power and you could just, as I preach today, make the, make the snakes go away. And he doesn't do it. For whatever reason, he allows these trials. And he says, for our, for our certainty, he says that it's, that it's for our good. So the Christian is simply to give thanks in all circumstances. I mean, there's certainly, in some cases, we can make it easy. Like I try to, when I'm teaching this to like the junior high kids, like it's, it's easy to say, I wish I had a billion dollars until you see, and I give you a list of billionaires who have committed suicide or whose lives are just totally falling apart. It's just like what we think we want is not necessarily what we need that would be good for us. And it, it would probably lead us away from the faith. So God does, so we can give thanks for our lack of what we thought we wanted. But that's hard. That's the burden, that's the Christian life in the flesh that we're, we're facing challenges and suffering. We have an all-powerful God who loves us and these two things don't seem to click. And so we don't look to our lives for certainty of his love. We look to the cross, that's John 3, 16, the sermon, the sermon again today. We don't look to our lives for certainty, but to the cross. But this is, this is huge. If you've been taught to look to your life for certainty of God's love, then of course your faith just shatters when things go poorly, right? I mean, the list is very, very, very long of people who were fine church-going people until some tragedy befell them. And then all of a sudden God, that's when God stopped existing for them. Because how can a loving God allow this, right? How can, how can the suffering, how can, how can God allow the suffering? So many atheists use that as a claim of when they decided to stop believing in Jesus, it's suffering. Jesus called it from the beginning in, uh, in early on when he's given the parables of uh, the parable of the sower. Remember the seed that falls on rocky soil, doesn't have depth of root, and it shoots up quickly, and then it's scorched by the sun, which Jesus says is the sun of suffering. So the, the faith that sprouts up quickly but has no depth runs into suffering and what immediately dies. Because how can this be? That makes, it makes perfect sense. I mean, we're thinking through that parable and all of our experiences in our own lives and, and maybe the lives of our, our friends and loved ones who have fallen away from the faith. And that's a challenge. Lord hasn't given up on them though. I mean, in some cases it's the, he's doing the prodigal, prodigal, son, prodigal son job on them. So using this trial to finally break them down so that he'll turn them back to himself. He knows what he's doing. So pray for them. Speak to them as you're given. Comfort them, Don. I mean, back to your, to your point. We're, we're speaking, we are, when we speak God's words of sure hope and comfort into the mess, we're actually speaking God's word that is alive. We're bringing life into death. Not in the sense of faith healers, like somebody's there dying and, you, and you're gonna say the magic words and make them jump up. We wish we could do that. It's funny, like when I walk into the hospital room, no one thinks that I'm gonna like fix it. They usually, well, pastor's here, this is the end. <laughs> right. I actually had a member call me and tell me, could you not go visit mom? Because she might think that she's dying and it'll scare her. <laughs> <laughs> and then she died 
Fortunately, I went and saw her anyway, so it worked out. Um. <laughs> All right. So, he, so uh, uh, no one returned to give. So we want to give thanks. We live our, give, thanks give, give thanks to God in all things. And he says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Faith, not based on what is seen, but as what is, what is heard. And that's key, this key statement of faith that comes by hearing, not from what is seen, as we get into this next section here. The coming of the kingdom. So we're going to get into... The, the, the final coming of Jesus. Before I get into that, any, any comments or questions on the 10 lepers? Keith. Yeah, so what I've always thought about is two things here is they must not have walked very far if the one, when they got cleansed and then the Samaritan turned around and immediately go back to Jesus to acknowledge uh, the fact that he was cleansed through and then secondly, it's another Samaritan, just like the Good Samaritan is a Samaritan being used as an example, or Samaritans not as focused in on the law under the Pharisees. Good point. Yeah, it's a good. That's a good thing to to, to pull out of this is the Jesus holding up the Samaritan. In the, remember the context of the Gospel of Luke. Luke is writing to the Gentiles. He has this like Gentile focus. And so people who are hearing this and hear this Jesus for Samaritans is a tremendous comfort for the non-Israelite. That Jesus is, the God, Jesus is God for the nations, savior of the nations. Um, think back to Epiphany with the Magi coming from the east, this light that's going out into all the world. So it's not just for Israel, it's now for, for everybody. So that, that, that's definitely a comfort for the Gentile ear and a word of um, a smacking word of law for the Pharisees. This would have angered them. Why, would, why, the, why is the Pharisees or why are the Samaritans getting held up high? Those are the bad guys. And Jesus is like, no, he's for all nations. Good, anything else? All right, the coming of the kingdom. I really botched the hand out there with a, I had a question that was covered up with a picture and I slid the picture down and my numbers got all messed up. What's important is the vultures. I got the perfect vultures picture there. I was, I was picking these pictures at Starbucks. I was Googling vulture pictures and the lady next to me is like, what are you doing? <laughs> Mind your own business, lady. You know? All right, being asked by the Pharisees, being asked, so notice the audience, the, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. It's important, the question here. From the Pharisees regarding the timing, he answers, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So remember, the Pharisees are all about what is seen. Their faith comes by hearing. Faith is in the heart. The Pharisees are all about what's on the outside. They want to control the outside. They're trying to bring about the coming of the kingdom by perfecting everyone on the outside. Eventually, if we can get everybody keeping the law, then the Messiah will come. So it's all about these external observances, and Jesus is turning it around here. God, the kingdom is not coming in a way that is observed, especially by the law. And when you look at, when you look at your life, 
Well, let me finish. Let me finish the verse. Kingdom of God is not coming ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So who, sa who sang those words? Jesus. So when he, when anybody who's in earshot of that and Jesus says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, what's he saying? So look at your handout. I guess number, just, just disregard the bullet point and look at number two. The kingdom of God is found wherever the what? The kingdom is wherever the king is. So when Jesus goes around saying the kingdom of God is here, it's because the king is here. So wherever Jesus is, there is the kingdom. Is Jesus with you? Like you now? Well, what do you say in Matthew 28? Behold, I'm with you always. Pretty sure always includes now, right? Does, so let's, look at, let's consider the world for a moment. Or your life, or outside your life into the world, does it, does it seem like this is the kingdom of God that Jesus is ruling over with, a, with a, the junk that Marty has to deal with every day? Mop up guts and the shootings, the broken families, the diseases, just on and on it goes. Does that seem like the kingdom of God? Jesus is here, right? So it's not a kingdom that we're looking for with our eyes. So our eyes are not gonna give us what we're looking for. The eyes are gonna give us the reason why Jesus came. So with faith, the, faith is coming by the ear. So anyway, the, God is coming not in, the kingdom of God is coming not in a way that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the light flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. So pause there just for a moment. So don't go out chasing when people are saying, hey, Jesus is coming back. Look, here he is. I heard he is over in Chicago. Don't go that way because that's not how the kingdom's going to come. It's not going to come in this kind of secret way. For as lightning flashes up the sky from one side to the other, everybody sees that. It's a noticeable event that draws everyone's attention. Not a secret thing. Unfortunately, sometimes you'll hear a teaching of something called the rapture, uh, within some millennial, uh, like post-millennialist views of Revelation and the end times, you'll hear, you might heard that word rapture, this idea of, of Jesus kind of, he's going to sneak in and suck out the Christians and then everybody else is going to be left behind. So like if, if God comes and takes like your, your spouse and then the clothes just kind of fall on the ground and they disappear because God took them away. Or you see the bumper sticker, they'll say like, Caution, in the event of the rapture, this car will be left without a driver. Yeah. It's kind of silly things. That's not what the Bible seems to indicate. 
about the, about the end. It's not going to be a surprise. It's not going to be a secret. It will be a surprise. It will be, it was going to come suddenly, but it's going to be a, a known, a known thing. It's not going to be in a corner. First, he must serve as lightning flashes up the sky, verse 24, from one side to the other. So will the son of man be in his day, the last day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. What's that talking about? His cross. So we have to make sure the number three on your handout there, should the return of Christ and final judgment bring us fear? No, because the cross happened. So whenever you hear talk of the last day and the rapture and all these end times teachings in such a way that brings you fear, then they're doing it wrong. Because the last day is Jesus returning to, to his believers, to everyone. I mean, it will cause fear to unbelievers, but to you, it won't. It shouldn't. Because he suffered many things to pay for the very thing that would cause you fear. Sin is removed, no cause to fear. If Jesus died, sin is removed, I'm good. Jesus comes back, hallelujah. Just as it was in the days of Noah. Now, last time I checked, was the flood a secret event? Like secret, only happened in one small town over here? No, it's just national, national, global thing. Everyone noticed it. And so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling. Life was going on as normal. And this is a surprise and sudden thing. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed, sudden, without warning. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. So don't cling to the stuff of this world. There's a, I think there's been a couple country songs in, in the last few years that have come out with this, like, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go today. Like, I really want to hold on to the stuff of this life as long as possible. So if Jesus is coming back, like, I... Can you hold on just a second? I really want to wrap up this, whatever this thing is that I'm really loving, right? So don't, get, don't cling to the things of this world. Your re re redemption is drawing near. Don't turn back like Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife, verse 32? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. That's a theme from a few weeks ago. Remember, death to self. Jesus is all about having us turn away from our self-seeking to him. The Christian baptismal life is the old sinful flesh daily being killed. The, the sinful urge within me to cling to the stuff of this world, to have this life be lost so that I would have the eternal life is the life of the Christian. But if you want to preserve this life, you're going to lose the life that matters. So don't cling to this life. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. It's not going to be a secret. This is just the return. There will be two women grinding together. That is, uh, for, for you millennials, not, it's not dancing. Um, <laughs> one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, then they, so the disciples, they said to him, where? So remember the Pharisees asked when, and Jesus gives them this, it's, 
it's not going to come in a way that you're trying to measure and find. It's not going to come on your terms and your way. And the disciples also miss the point. They're thinking, where? Like it's going to be, we're up here. It's going to be down in Jerusalem. We want to make sure that we're there. So when Jesus comes back, where is it going to be happening? So he says, this weird saying, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's kind of a creepy thing for him to say. But I mean, have you ever been walking along and seen the, the vultures up in the sky? First of all, is that a secret thing or can everybody look up and see that? Everybody can see that. So everyone's going to know. Everyone's going to know what's happening. So yeah, so wherever it happens, don't worry about it. Everyone's going to know it's not going to be a secret. That's the return of the coming of the Son of, the son of Man. And in case that caused, um, it causes some angst or some some fear for the last day, Jesus immediately says at the beginning of chapter 18, and he, in the same context, after the vultures, this creepy line about where the vultures will gather, there the corpses, he tells them a parable to the effect, verse chapter 18, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Because it's gonna, there's gonna be times in this life that you're gonna lose heart. And now we're gonna unfold a whole parable in chapter 18, where he's giving comfort to the heart. The parable of the praying persistent wid widow. So that's our, uh, that's our study for next week. So we'll talk about prayer. And then behind that is the Pharisee and the tax collector. So prayer and then repentance. Any comments or questions on the, the last day, the coming of the Son of Man? This is just one of many places where it's talked about. First Thessalonians, uh, there's a reading in First Thessalonians talking about Christians being caught up in the air uh, but those who have died are going to come before us. I mean, Matthew's got a few different pictures of the last day. But in the book of Revelation too, my big thing is it is the book of, the, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the Savior from sin, death, and the devil. So when Jesus returns, we don't need to fear. So when you hear the end times taught in such a way that it brings any kind of fear, they're doing it wrong. Run to the lamb who is slain and ask yourself, why was he slain? To cover my sins. So if he's slain, my sins are covered, we're good. Dennis. Could be, if I understand what you're saying. Uh, I think, at least the way, the way that I read it in the context of this, in answer to the question of where, it's this knowability of the final, of the final day. This, that it's gonna be seen, it's not gonna be a secret. That's probably the biggest walk away from this is, is like lightning in the sky, the sound of a trumpet, an archangel, this blast, this, that's the last day. Not a secret. And not to, not to bring us fear, but as, as Matthew puts it, uh, rise up, lift up your heads, for your redemption is drawing near on that last day. Good. Yes, Pat.
Also, to be, you want to be taken, it seems. Right? Um, so, the, but the, what happens after that is not like, and then there's a thousand years of suffering, whatever. This, like, that's the, the way it's put in like the, the Left Behind series. They're like, now there's a second chance and there's like a different judgment that's coming later. And they have this like millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years on earth and all these intricate systems. Um, depending, on, depending on the teaching of the end times or depending on the denomination that you're talking to. But this is to be taken, which is First Thessalonians, is to be caught up in the air with those who have already died. And then the earth is destroyed. Um, and they're rebuilt. And then there's the final judgment, the raising. I mean, the timing of this the timeline isn't really laid out for us because it doesn't matter. Because the point of the Bible is to get us to the cross, our need for the cross, and to give us the cross. But as far as the timeline, the chronology of the last day isn't as clear. We can glean a few things. Certainly there's all the dead will be raised. There's a final judgment. The earth is destroyed and recreated. But how that all works out time-wise, I don't know. But for those who are, who are alive, when he comes back, we're caught up in the air. I used to always be afraid like, when Jesus comes back, that means I'm going to die. Like, I mean, he's going to kill me just to raise me up, like, immediately. But that, the scriptures don't indicate that. Like, he's coming back to kill me. Then I would kind of fear the last day, right? That's not the picture. He comes back, lift up your head. Your redemption is drawing near, not your death. All right. Is it the, the coming of the children makes me... Oh, there's one more. Well, how about, we, how about we, can we talk, we can start off Bible study next week by talking a little bit more about the end time stuff, because we get, is that okay? Yeah. Rebecca McBroom, the last, name, the last name McBroom you might see on a road sign or on the street somewhere, that's Rebecca's son, uh, running for city, what is it, city council? All right, so next, yeah, David. Coffee hour in two weeks. So if you want to have coffee, somebody please jump in and volunteer uh, for coffee hour in a couple weeks. And thanks for all of you who do to make this thing happen. The Lord be with you.